Hello, it's Graham Norton here. Thank you for listening to my Virgin Radio podcast with Waitrose. This week on the show, Audra MacDonald tells us all about her one-night-only performance at the London Palladium. Charlene McKenna fills us in on Series 2 of Bloodlands. Michael Palin zooms in to give us an insight of his new tour from North Korea to Iraq. Jay Blades gives us handy tips and tricks from his new book, DIY with Jay. Show chef Martha cooks up two very affordable dishes, a tasty pasta recipe and a whole chicken to come. And we've been putting our heads together to solve your dilemmas in Graham's Guide. Here's Maria to tell us more. Oh yeah, working DJ, <laughs> at the top of the tower. I like that. Yeah. Could you keep that up all show, please? Yeah, I will. Traffic's moving. Yeah, 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 yeah great. <laughs> it's very good. <laughs> I like it. Um, How are you? I'm in mourning for summer. Oh, I know. It was quite chilly today. Yeah. I mean, I, I thought, oh, I better put a zippy top on. And then I got out and I thought, oh, I should have put a bigger zippy top on. Did you just call it a zippy top? Yes, I did. <laughs> it's top. It's zippy top weather. <laughs> it's a top with a zip. Zippy top, zippy top. Time for the zippy top. Um, Yes, uh, I just don't, you know, it's dark when I get up now and it gets dark really, really early. And that just makes me sad. And didn't that happen really fast? It happened on Wednesday, I think. It just suddenly decided, oh, by the way, those long evenings. They're over. Yeah, it's been gradual. I mean, Has you it? probably don't notice things like that because no. you don't notice life. No, really, I do don't. You? No, no. Passing head you by. Head down the book. That's me. <laughs> um, we actually had a social event this week, you and I. We did. Well, actually, today is the actual birthday. So happy birthday, Whitney, if you're oh, listening. Oh, happy birthday, Whitney. We went to a lovely dinner for a birthday mm. with our friend Whitney. It was yeah, good. It was I mean, really lovely. I feel like the country yokel who doesn't come up to London very much anymore. I noticed you struggling with the cutlery, yes. <laughs> struggling with the social chit-chat, actually. I still have social anxiety, or maybe I've just acquired it. I do. I know, I liked it. I, I really enjoyed it. I, and isn't it funny when you... Like, last night, I was going to the theatre, and I was in the taxi going, and I think, why did I decide to do this? Strictly's on... <laughs> Lights on in my house. I could be there. Cozy. Cozy. Da, da, da. Anyway, went to the theatre. So glad I did. What so, was it called? It was called Eureka Day. Eureka at the, Day at, at the, the Old Vic. Vic. Mm-hmm. And it is, it, it's a, a, it's an American play. It stars, if only I'd bought a programme, I'd know who's in it. But I know Helen Hunt is in it. And somebody who used to be in Kids in the Hall. There. <laughs> Anyway, the, you're doing a grand job of the PR. All very good. Everything it's very good, and I think it's a brand new play, and it's a comedy. But it's actually, it's more complicated than a comedy because there are other issues in it, quite serious things as well. But there is one scene at the end of Act One that almost brought the house down. The Old Vic is an old theatre, yeah. and it nearly yeah. brought the house down. People, and did you laugh? Oh, did it bring your so house hard. down? It brought my house down. I mean, down. that see, you've you've. You've excelled now. You've um, redeemed yourself by giving people a thing to go and look forward to. Yeah, no, rather seriously. than saying the, the person that was in it used to be in Kids in the Hall. Yeah, and blah blah blah. It's and also here are my other highlights. Oh, right. Uh, it's short. Yeah, good. Yeah, which I couldn't have been happier. Over an hour. Well, it is over an hour, but there's a little very long interval. Right. Yeah, really good. Um, what else can I? T- those are those are really my selling points. Okay. I could hear it. It was brightly lit and it was short. And it was funny. And it was very funny. And the scene to look forward to is just before the end of the first half. Uh, yes. And then, you know, get ready. 
<laughs> the second half was very good too. It just never, it never matches the hilarity of that scene. Uh, I am um, just going back to the social anxiety. I was talking to somebody on whenever we went to the party. And Wednesday, 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 Wednesday. Was, yeah. And um, somebody who fell into the flowers and knocked all the flowers over. Oh, I no. can't remember who. It was quite a, a large gentleman. I wish I'd seen that. And no, it was quite good. And uh, I said, "Oh," he said, "Oh, I don't know what's wrong with me." And I said, "Maybe you have dyspraxia." which is where you're a little clumsy, I believe. And then I said, it normally goes with, I think there's three things that begin with D. And he said, what are the other things? I said, um, <laughs> dyslexia. <laughs> and he said, and what's the last one? And I couldn't remember what it was. So I said, dementia. <laughs> <laughs> and he looked horrified. So maybe I touched on something. And that's when I thought, I have to go to the loo now and give myself <laughs> a severe talking to about saying things in your head out loud. And also that it might be mildly amusing to a friend, but to a stranger, I know they I've, don't know you, I'm... they might think you're a doctor. <laughs> In which case, that is terrible news. Well, not remembering the three things that go with a D. Mind you, that is probably like a doctor, isn't it? Yeah, and also it suggests that you have one of the three Ds. <laughs> what are the three Ds? Uh-oh. <laughs> it was very nice to stay at your house and for Dolly, the little dog, to play with Douglas, the bigger that, dog. That was very nice. Well, they didn't play much. I though, don't, don't think they no. really like each other. No, not much. I think they just tolerate. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes dogs do that. Yeah, reminds me of something. I don't know what. Uh... <laughs> me. No, Me no, sitting here. No. Virgin Radio. I've got two letters here. Which one shall I read first? Uh, the first one. Oh, OK. <laughs> <laughs> That's crazy. Here we go. Dear Graham and Maria... My friend, let's call him Mark, mm -hmm. is hopeless with, with relationships. They all follow the same pattern. He meets someone who is attractive or interesting, often rich or a model. Hmm. He falls hopelessly in love, moves in with them, gets dumped and left with nothing and then ends up on my sofa as a ball of despair. <laughs> Sorry. This has been going on for nearly three decades what? and we're all frankly <laughs> sick of it. Through love and manipulation, we managed to get him to buy a flat a few years ago. So at least he had that. Last year, he met a man who was 20 years his junior and rich. We all hated him, but he moved in with him and sold his flat. And now the relationship is on the rocks. Short of chaining him up in a basement, I no longer know how to help him. Over to you. And that is from Ewan in London. Well, Ewan in London. I mean, you know, these are the sort of problems we live for, aren't they, Graham, really? Relationship problems and somebody that keeps making the same mistake over and over again. Now, you see, if this has been going on for three decades, uh, Ewan in London... It's coming up to the time where he will no longer be attracting the models or the rich people or the younger men. So he really, you know, I'm just being, people say I'm being harsh, but I'm just being honest. This is what happens to everybody. He needs to establish himself and not live through other people. Now, I'm presuming, Ewan in London, that he, when he sold his flat, he's made a bit of money and because he was living with a rich person, he hasn't spent much of it. So I'm suggesting you all help him to re-establish himself and buy another flat. It might be a little bit smaller than the last one, but at least it's his. And stop him moving in with people. 
I mean, this is madness because what what he's doing is sort of sublimating his own self for other people and other people don't really want that to happen. They want to move in with someone who's, you know, fun and vibrant and the person they first met and not some sap who sits on the sofa saying, well, I don't need to do anything because you're rich and I live in your house. There's a reason, you know, all of these relationships are ending. He's not putting... He's not supplying anything and probably nothing of himself. And maybe he's very attractive, but that won't last and people see through it. So I think, you know, some people say you people have to be allowed to fail and sometimes you can fail up. But as it's been going on for 30 years, I think this is an issue that you can possibly get therapy with because there's a pattern emerging and once or twice it's unfortunate and now yeah. it's become a habit. I mean, the pattern hasn't emerged. I mean, the pattern is a repeat wallpaper yeah. of some, some length. But how now. would you suggest they rectify this, Graham? Well, well, the thing is, Ewan, I would say some of them may be models... I mean, models, how are you? Model. Yeah. Well, I, I like the fact I'm a he's, model. He, I like the fact he says rich or a model, but attractive and interesting. Mm. Yeah. But also, rich. That's, here's my thing. I think Ewan is mistaking posh for rich. Posh? As there, in, there's exactly, no mention exactly, of posh. But, but, but I think he's mistaking the two. Why? Because if you're rich, why are you moving into this guy's flat that he managed to scrabble together to get and then making him sell it? That doesn't sound like a rich person. No, wait. He, what he's saying is, he last year he met for twenty years his junior. We all hate him, but Who he was moved. Rich? He moved in with him. He moved in with the rich person twenty years the junior, oh, and I then see. sold his own oh, flat. Oh, I see. Which was a foolish thing to do because yeah, that you know, was stupid. Keep it, yeah. rent it, or just keep it so that you've got. I don't know why he sold the flat. This yeah. is madness. I mean, I think one of the problems here is your friend isn't very bright, and <laughs> and ain't no solution for that. Uh, because he's gen. I mean, you you're right. You know, make some new mistakes. I think you know we all make mistakes, but make new ones. Don't continually make the same one over and over again. Yes. And I think that's that's what you need to say to him. I mean, the trouble is, you are attracted to what you're attracted to. He's attracted to these young, beautiful men or women. Men, aren't they? Yeah, men. Yeah, and uh, I think we call them twinks in the business. Twinks, twinks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. lovely, lovely. Uh, but that's what he's attracted to, and so. But why aren't the relationships holding? Because, you... because you know, one, a twink will get bored of this man because he's not very bright, and uh, two, <laughs> they they age out of being a twink quite quickly. Yes. You know, and also they'll start to be a bit demanding, a bit kind of like. I mean, yeah, if I mean this what has you been were going saying, on for three decades. This guy has got to be near nearing fifty, right? Maybe sixty. It could be 70. The whole thing know. is not good. But why you, where you fell down, Ewan, in London, was where you should have been a good friend. When he moved in with the guy, you go, OK, everybody hates him, but whatever, it's your life. Do not sell the flat. Do not sell the flat. Let's look at your relationship history. Finish, 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 Done. finish. And then... Yeah. So, why did you let him sell the flat? I, I mean, I'm blaming I, you, Ewan. Well, I think, Ewan, there's nothing to be done about the relationship thing because you can hold a mirror up to this man as much as you like, um, but he will refuse to see... I mean, in fact, he, I bet you he knows what he's doing. He knows what he's doing and he doesn't care. He's one of those people. He likes the excitement of new relationships and off he goes... I do think encourage him to scrabble together some more money and buy another flat. Yes, because at the moment he's, you know, nearing 60. I'm, I'm making him older with each time I speak. Um, and nearing 60 with nowhere to live, curled up on your sofa as a ball of despair. That's no way for anyone to no. live. 
So I think uh, encourage him to buy a flat. Let him continue to make mistakes. And if he mentions selling the flat again, you know, just go Chain crazy. him in there, like yeah, you do, said. Yeah, do chain him in a basement. I think that's actually, that's not a bad solution. <laughs> Graham and Maria's solution. <laughs> chain them up, put them in the basement, throw away the key. Yes, uh, put some bar, sticker bars <laughs> under the door and uh, that'll be fine. Yeah. Phew, well, I think we did that, Maria. Yeah. I mean, we got oh, there in the end, Graham. some heavy lifting, but ah, I think we solved that yeah, problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think the Virgin Radio <laughs> listeners might have a better solution. I think they might. Oh, yeah. And my favourite responders today, oh, if you're feeling the awesome chill, feel it no more, you could get a bottle of Waitrose Blueprint Chianti from Tuscany. Oh, yeah. Uh, This Chianti has got notes of ripe berry fruit, perfect with a wide variety of pasta dishes. Or indeed nothing at all, just a glass. (laughs) Hey, if you live alone, a straw. No one's looking. There you go. Uh, What do you do to help somebody who can't help themselves? That is from you in London. Karen writes, I would ask whose problem it is. As Ewan's been supporting him for over 30 years, I think there are codependency issues with Ewan and friend. Well, now, is Ewan enabling? Is that what's going on? I'd suggest therapy where Ewan tells him how he's feeling and this may also be how his ex-partners feel. Worth a try and it might help the friend to mature as Ewan clearly has. Well, I think, I mean, therapy is clearly going to (laughs) help it won't hurt uh here and also it'll be somewhere from to be for an hour a week so you know it's good you and we've all been there says tony i met my soulmate out of the blue after being widowed give it time when he next meets someone get him to rent out his home rather than selling it and burning all his bridges sometimes people are relationship disaster magnets we all know of at least one it is true isn't it? And I think it's some people who are just terrified of being alone. They'd rather be in a terrible relationship than, than risk being single. And, you know, being alone surely is better than what Ewan's describing. I think the reason he's attracted to rich and beautiful partners, well, when you put it like that, <laughs> why is he attracted to these rich, beautiful people? I don't get it. Uh, <laughs> I think the reason he's attracted to rich and beautiful partners is that he doesn't feel like he's attractive, more rich, and seeks others to boost how he feels about himself. He needs help to find a way to feel good about himself before he looks for the next partner. Buy him a copy of Codependent No More, says Anne in Northern Ireland. Well, Anne in Northern Ireland, because that is such a specific bit of advice where you can actually... Buy my book and step away and see if it helps. I am giving you the bottle of Waitrose Blueprint Chianti from Tuscany. There you go. OK, this is a thorny one. It involves animals, but not in a bad way. Dear Graham and Maria, my husband and I have offered to host a New Year's Eve party for our friends and everyone is keen. The problem is, two of our families invited have dogs and we have a zero dog policy in our house because of our cat. OK. Our friends' dog sitters are already booked up. So as it stands, they won't be able to come. Oh, please. My husband has suggested that my mum looks after our cat over Christmas, which would mean the dogs could come over. But I don't think that our cat should be ousted for a week which is how long it would be due to logistics, so that we can have dogs over here for one night. I'm losing the will to live, can I just tell you that? <laughs> I, know cats Keep and, I know cats and dogs can exist in harmony, but our cat is not a fan of dogs, and the dogs in question always bark at cats that they see in their garden. So I think it's unfair we should bring one into his territory. 
My husband is getting annoyed with me. Really? Not the only one. Because we don't get to see our friends that often. Uh, and um, what anymore? Often anymore. Yeah, excuse me, anymore. And she's making that the priority. She's making that the priority here and not our cat. Making Be- that and not our cat. Beautifully read. <laughs> I know, I know. Well, as I Deciphering say... Deciphering Sanskrit. <laughs> <laughs> and then Karen in East Grinstead, for that is who it is from, says, am I being unreasonable? Yeah, shall I play a record? <laughs> yeah, I think so. Um, Karen in East Grinstead, I mean, you look, of course everybody has problems and it's all relative and so on and so forth, but I do think, A, it's a million years away because it's New Year's Eve, B, your friend's dog sitters. People will have dogs. Loads of people stay in on New Year's Eve because they can't be bothered with the whole brouhaha. So you can get dogs looked after by your neighbours or someone at the end of the street or whatever. Here's the thing. You tell your friends with the dogs that there's going to be a firework display. Which there probably is. Well, husband now has to go out and buy fireworks. <laughs> uh, so it would be too scary for the dogs. I mean, that seems to me simple. I, although I'm not really a big fan of the firework displays, but that's a good way. Or what about this? You put the cat in its own room with some yum-yums or some whatever they're called, those things that make cats crazy, and uh, water, and you lock the door and then the dogs can roam around and then the people go home and your husband doesn't have to be annoyed with you anymore. Yeah, I mean, I think put the cat in a, what do you call it, a basket, one of those cat basket things, and shove it in a room somewhere. It's only for a few hours. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. It's only for a few hours. Yeah. Or just like, leave a window open. <laughs> no, but I mean, isn't it strange how people do project all manner of things? I think... There's more to this than meets the eye. Well, Karen loves that cat. Yeah, she loves the cat. And we should we should I'm understand sh- that pet madness. Yes. Well, I know. We do understand the pet madness. I'm not sure she <laughs> she loves the husband quite so much or the friends. But, Karen, I would say to you, Karen, um, that you don't... You say it in your letter. You don't get to see your friends very often. Don't let this become a massive issue and spoil something that is still months away, but you've got to get a lot of fireworks for, if you can say, if you're going to say to them, don't bring your dogs because they're But it's scared. interesting, isn't it? Because I think in London, people wouldn't assume if you had a, you know, a Labrador or something, you wouldn't think, oh, I'm going to someone's house, I'll bring that. You, you, whereas in East Grinstead, obviously it's, you know, it's horse country, it's very, you know, Argus and da, da, da. So people do bring dogs around. So everyone's quite doggy. So I think it's quite hard for her to kind of go, this is a dog-free house because that isn't the world she lives yeah. in. So I think pop cat in a basket, um, you know, what, you, or take it to the vet and they'll give it some drugs and it'll sleep for a few hours. <laughs> no, people are going to be cross with you for saying that. Oh, okay. I'm just putting I'm not that saying out. put it down. No, no, I know. <laughs> not but, that many drugs. Drugging, drugging a cat just so it has to... But, um, yes, I just think, actually, because I'm more of a dog person, I would say... Put the cat. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We're like, oh, just, uh, well, get rid of the cat. <laughs> Just or said, let your cat go to your mum's for a week. It might be nice. Well, it's no, be- I know. If I loved my cat, I would be annoyed mm. that I was not going to see my cat for a week because two people wanted to bring a dog to my party. Okay, well then put the cat in a room. Yeah, I think put a cat in a room. Um, in and your then house. put the dog in another room. <laughs> And then put the other dog in another room. And then the fox and the chicken and the big bag of grain. <laughs> and the budgerigar. 
I, I think this is easily solved, Karen in East Grinstead, with just a bit of your cat mm. will suffer for three hours maximum. Yes, I feel it's not, how do I put this, a problem. <laughs> <laughs> I feel it's very much something that you can think about for two seconds and just yeah. fix it. And so are we on the husband's side for getting annoyed with Karen? Well, I just think Karen's built it into a problem that it isn't. So I, yeah, there are bigger problems, Karen. Well, no, and but that's not that doesn't make that no, problem I know. smaller. That's why I said it's yeah. all relative. And my favourite responders today are getting a bottle of Waitrose Blueprint Chianti from Tuscany. Oh yeah, perfect for this autumnal day. Uh, right, Lara and Peter from Whitechapel. We won't be looking after Miles over Christmas. We can take care of the dogs. Well, there you go. Problem solved, Karen Just, you know, get a dog Uber from East Grinstead and uh, that'll be fine. Uh, Georgie in Oakham. Why would you leave your dog alone at New Year's? They're part of the family. They cannot expect you to oust your pet for theirs. Meet the friends another time, away from the house for a walk and lunch. That's if you really do want to see them, of course. So Georgie is basically saying they shouldn't come and, uh, and you, OK, fair enough. <laughs> we'll all just spend New Year's with our pets. Uh, Lizzie in Aberdeen, how is it your problem what other people do with their pet when they go to a party? You've sent the invite, you have a cat, what they do with their pet in over three months' time is up to them. I hear you, Lizzie. <laughs> Dave in Gloucester, perhaps the friends are using the dog as an excuse because they would rather not come. <laughs> it's their problem, not Karen's. If they really want to be at the party, they'll find a dog sitter. Uh, well, I, I do agree with you. I think I'll I'll give the wine to Lizzie in Aberdeen because I I, I know I know what you mean. Uh, Lizzie in Aberdeen gets the uh, delicious Chianti courtesy of Waitrose. The Graham Norton Radio Show with Waitrose. Food to feel good about. Virgin Radio. She's here, everyone. She's here. I promised you she would be, and it, it, she actually showed up. Yay! Uh, Audra <laughs> McDonald. Uh, Live at the London Palladium tomorrow night. Uh, welcome, welcome, welcome. Thank so, you. So uh, you're just doing this one show at the London Palladium. Yes. And it, it's billed as the Great American Songbook. Yeah, yeah. So how how does... Is this a show that you do? Well, it's 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 made up of so songs that I've recorded over the years, you know, because I strictly come, not strictly, but mainly come from the theatre world and musical theatre. So um, my... My repertoire is usually Broadway, and so a lot of songs that I've recorded over the years, some role songs from shows that I've done, um, songs from shows that I've always wanted to do, but definitely all within sort of the musical theater sort of realm. Okay, and have you, I mean, have you rehearsed? But you know, you know what <laughs> no, I mean. No, I didn't rehearse <laughs> yeah, at all. Yeah. No, I'm just going to wing it. I'm going to wear some tennis shoes, and I'm just going to wing it, see what happens. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm seeing a gown. I'm seeing a gown. Uh, is there, is there, uh, just, is it just you and a piano? No, oh, no, it's me and an orchestra. We've got a 40-piece orchestra. Hello. Theatre orchestra. Yeah, it's really, I'm very excited about that. That's always such a joy. I mean, I do concerts all over the world and, and a lot in the United States. And sometimes I do them with just my uh, music director at the piano. And then sometimes I do it with a trio. Um, but it's always a treat when I get to sing with a, a big orchestra, especially in a hall like the Palladium. Yeah. You know, and, you know, all the history that's there, too. And I, I was, I've always been a big Judy Garland fan, so I... I think about her famous concert there, and and so the fact that um, I get to then sort of step on the stage and and hopefully not trip it up and 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 you know 
get my get my singing on with this big beautiful orchestra i'm very excited about that it must be so lovely having that sound behind you it is it's like riding an incredible wave you know and and um the it's it's some people would say it's like a support but it's it's instead you're a part of the wall of sound you know that's coming toward the audience so and you're not alone you're not alone on this stage (laughs) i mean if i go up on a lyric or something maybe i'll just turn around to a violinist and say what was what was (laughs) because what's it like on Broadway because here I feel like West End musical orchestras are getting smaller and smaller they keep whittling them down yeah unfortunately that's happening on Broadway too although I mean it's happened to such an extreme extent um, in in prior years that now um, people are trying to do things to sort of get them as big as they possibly can again of course everything comes down to money 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 right yeah Um, but at the same time it's you know, live musicians in the pit is part of that experience. It's part of the, you know, live theater experience. And so um, whenever we can, we try and make the orchestras as big as possible. But I, I, I know that's been like a cost cutting measure. Yeah. But to hear your voice at a 40 piece orchestra in a, a house the size of the London Palladium, that is special. That... I'm, I'm excited. I'm, I'm very excited. I mean, I, I, I'm not saying it's special because I, I know what my voice sounds like. Because you know like. it is. <laughs> no, 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 no. You know it's but special. But we, we've been having orchestra rehearsals and they sound incredible. And so I can't wait for people just to hear, hear that great old fashioned sound of 40 pieces. Yeah. Because what's it like? Because if you're rehearsing in a hall and it's not might in any way can you hear yourself with the orchestra um sometimes sometimes not especially when the brass gets going you know yeah. sometimes you can't but um yeah for this one we will be mic'd to a certain extent especially because it's going to be um recorded it's going to be videotaped do we say videotape anymore no I we don't, don't. what do we say i don't know video capture downloaded it's, i don't know so because to be released later so um those who can't come will be able to see it at some point later um so we will have microphones because of that and it's tomorrow night, i should say if uh, there are a couple of tickets left uh you could try if you go to audra dash london.com i love that you've got your own website for an evening i i didn't know i had one you do check it out do the i pictures get points are sensational it's <laughs> <laughs> so revealing oh, i'm really what? surprised i'm really surprised you okayed them oh my god i was young i needed the money what are you talking about <laughs> audrey dash london mm. <laughs> no. uh, no, it's, all, it's all very tasteful okay uh, audrey so what interests me about you is, so you trained as a soprano at Juilliard. Yeah. Does that mean, you, did you see opera was going to be your no, gig? Oh, well, no, okay. No, no, no. But you have done some opera. Well, no, that's the thing. I, I, I went to Juilliard um, sort of uneducated about what Juilliard actually was. I auditioned for Juilliard because I was you know, a kid growing up in Fresno, California, which was a you know agricultural sort of community in California. And I knew I wanted to be on Broadway. And fame was very big at that time. Remember the, yeah. the movie and the TV show Fame? And um, a girl from my uh, high school had auditioned for Juilliard the year before. Um, and so when it was time for me to look at colleges, I was like, well, if... Shelly Modioshi can audition for Juilliard. <laughs> Sorry, Shelly Modioshi, if you're listening. Um, then I can audition for Juilliard. So I auditioned and I thought, well, I'll, I'll sing to get in because that's probably my strongest suit. 
And I didn't pay attention to the fact that they wanted me to sing to audition. You had to sing an Italian, Italian aria and you had to sing something uh, in another language. and You had to sing something from an opera. And, and I, so I just picked stuff thinking, well, they just want to hear that. But I thought I'd be able to study musical theater while I was there. And I was sorely mistaken. It was all opera. So the whole time I was at Juilliard, I was like, what am I doing here? I'm in the wrong story. <laughs> Literally, I was not happy. Um, and I drove my teachers crazy. So when I left Juilliard, um, you know, five years later instead of four, which is what the program actually should have been. Yeah. It took me five years. Um, I then sort of started auditioning and kind of went back into what I had originally wanted. And what does all that training do to your voice? Does it make, did you have to, did you have to relearn Broadway? Well, did, you know, Graham, what it did is it taught me that I had more of a voice than I thought I did. I, you know, I originally was just sort of belting and doing all this stuff. And when I studied at Juilliard, what I did learn is that my voice was, um, larger than I, larger and, and, and had more range to it than I was giving myself credit for. So I did find that. And then I sort of, in, and then I went away from what I thought was my voice. Oh, this feels boring. But then I, and then I incorporated back to who I was, you know, as a singer. So it was, it was an interesting journey. I am talking to Audra McDonald, who has won more Tonys than she should a stick at. Two Grammys and an Emmy. Where's that Oscar? Where's that EGOT? Oh, I know. <laughs> I gotta figure that out. No, it's I'm so lucky to to have the what do I have the gd. Yeah, the I, good. I, I, I might I might never get the ought, but that's okay. I don't need a vowel. I'm good. <laughs> I have one. I have one with the e. It's all good. And when you because so you you trained as a, a soprano. You then went into Broadway. When did because I always feel if I see you in something you know, like The Good Wife, The Good Fight or Gilded Age or something, and you're not singing, I feel cheated. <laughs> it's like when I see Cynthia Revo in something and she's yeah, not singing. And I think, she's not singing. No, sing, come on. <laughs> I know what you can do. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's funny too, especially with like The Gilded Age because it's, you know, that's that's a show that's kind of chock full of a bunch of sort of theatre stars it's, it's like broadway it's like yeah, it's, it's great isn't it's it broadway it's, it's meets down abbey basically yeah, yeah. and almost all of us are singers so it is kind of strange that that none of us sing on that show or, or the good fight for that matter so many of us are singers and um i don't know i mean i like it just because it gives you the you know the chance to sort of you know do different things and be seen in different ways and not be pigeonholed in any way but um Every once in a while, it would be nice. I remember I was doing A Raisin in the Sun on Broadway years ago with Felicia Rashad and and P. Diddy, um, Sean Combs. And um, there's one scene in it, and, you know, it's not a musical, it's a play. And there was one scene where my character, Ruth, is just sort of like cleaning up the house very quietly, and she hums a little bit, right? (laughs) And so I was just humming a little bit, and somebody in the audience, okay, you know, know, everybody suspends disbelief so that we can, you know, believe we're in this moment. Somebody in the audience goes, sang, Audra! (laughs) What are you doing? Please don't, please don't do that. So sometimes people do expect. It, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, and when you, and when you went into kind of straight acting, did you, you know, not imposter syndrome, but did you kind of, did, did it take you a while to feel comfortable in that world, or did you feel like other people were suspicious of you because you were the musical theatre kid? Oh, you know, it's interesting. I, I it was imposter syndrome in terms of getting in front of a camera. That and that was just. It, it, imposter syndrome or fear because you know when you're on stage you have to be able to make your emotions and everything reach the back wall of the theater so when I first started doing um, 
film and television work, I was so, so intimidated by this camera right in your face, you know, and I just didn't want to move. And, you know, so I looked very wooden and stiff. But um, then once I sort of talked myself into realizing, no, the camera is actually the audience, so calm down. And then I was doing private practice, which, you know, in those days you were doing, I think we did 26 episodes that first season. So, and, you know, the hours are 17 hour days, uh, you know, day after day on set. So, you know, you're still filming at like two o'clock in the morning sometimes. So you just get used to it. Um, But in the beginning, there was a bit of fear. And I guess with that comes the imposter syndrome. But then you get over it and you just get tired. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, have you, is the second season of Gilded Age all done and dusted now? Almost. I go back um, and I still have about uh, two weeks left of filming. We're almost, we're almost done. I think it'll be out in February, but don't quote me. I didn't say that, but maybe I did. Is it filmed in New York? Oh, yeah. Yeah. All in, um, you know, in in Newport, the stuff that's done in Newport is filmed in Newport, Newport, uh, Rhode Island. And a lot of the stuff that we do is filmed either in on on Long Island or uh, in Albany, New York. We do because there's a lot of the architecture up there in Albany and Troy, New York, that's still very much of the period. So we do a lot of our uh, our sort of exterior work there. And the two big houses and, you know, uh, oh, that, Parker, is that a set? That is a set. Where the hell did they find enough room to build that? I, it's on Long Island, but the whole, I mean, you, you know, it looks like normal New York and then you see these sort of big, big, big sort of backsides of a set and then as soon as you cross through into it, huge, long, you know, dirt street, horses, you know, the faux Central Park and these two enormous houses and everything alongside of it. You walk, it's like walking into Disneyland. It's, it's you know, Disneyland in the 1880s. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't show business fabulous? <laughs> and I must let you go because you must rest. I you must, must rest. rest. Yes. Full vocal rest till yes, tomorrow afternoon. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, tomorrow night. Uh, Audra McDonald, live at the London Palladium, singing the Great American Songbook. There are a couple of tickets left. You go to Audra a-U-D-R-A dash London dot com. Thank you so much for coming to see us because I know it's a, it must be a, a, a big weekend for you. So thank you very much for thank sparing you. the time. Thank you. Lovely to see you. Take thank care you. now. The Graham Norton Radio Show with Waitrose. Food to feel good about. Virgin Radio. So I'll be my second guest of the day. She has starred in River Street, Peaky Blinders, Holding and now returns in Bloodlands. It's BBC One's new big drama, Crime drama from Northern Ireland and her name is Charlene McKenna and she joins us now. Hello Charlene. Top of the afternoon Graham. Oh yes of course. How are we? It is the afternoon. Well spotted Charlene McKenna. You are so wise. <laughs> um, I very well. No How are you? Idea. <laughs> I'm good. I'm good. I've had a couple of fights with my dogs today but other than that we're getting back on track and we're good. Very good. What did you have fights about? <laughs> Um, mostly we're potty training our third puppy and we had fights with that you don't go to the toilet on the rug. That is a fight worth having. <laughs> it's a fight. You don't want to lose that fight. No, no, no. I'm, I'm, I'm racing through pet spray. <laughs> uh, so right tell me, uh, so Bloodlands is, is back and I feel like this season your character has kind of stepped up. I think in season one you were more of a kind of a, a sidekick. You seem more yeah. of a, a partner this time. Yeah, I think because we we got the world all nicely set up in season one and you started to learn that Jimmy's character was not all it was cracked up to be and that he's a bit of a snake. Whereas I feel like season two is a bit like we know the fox is in the foxhole and I'm the terrier at the edge sniffing it out. I like we've done a lot of dog talking in minutes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know where. That analogy 
just popped into my head just now. <laughs> I don't know why. It's like we were talking about dogs or something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because, so, yeah, so the idea is, so uh, DCI Tom Brannock, played by James yeah. Nesbitt. So in this, because I... In the first season, you knew that he had a personal involvement, but you didn't know he was a wrong one. Yes, yes. You well, you weren't sure. You're like, the, he feels like he might be a wrong one, but maybe he has good reason. And then the more you got into it, the more you start with season two. I mean, me and Jimmy would have arguments with this because he would defend his character to a fault. And I'd be going, no, he's just a wrong one. He'd be like, oh, well, no, because, you know, his background and this. And I was like, no, 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 he's just killing people, Jimmy. He's killing people. Um, but uh, by the end of this season, how many episodes are there? Six in this, in season two, there's six. Okay. But by the end of this season, do, do I mean, because... Uh, you play Neve McGovern, and she is uh, even in because uh, I've seen tonight's episode. I mean, she's figuring out. Hang on, I you know people are working against this investigation. Um, you know how wide does the gap get between you and and Brannock? It's a really tricky thing to walk because I have to. I'm so sus of him, and I was sus of him by the end of one. Season one, sorry. And it apparently got all tied up with a bit of a bow on it, which didn't jar for my character at all. But we start season two and we've seemingly found Goliath, inverted commas, and, you know, he's gone and no longer a problem. And we've moved on. But immediately this investigation doesn't smell right. He's not acting right. I don't buy it. So I continually don't buy. And she sort of ends up running about three operations sort of at once. because She has to watch him work alongside him solve the seemingly ordinary case that's uninvolved while also running her own investigation underneath. So it gets quite hairy and complicated. And we should say this season uh, features the fragrant Victoria Smurfit. <laughs> yes. Yes, she's beautifully fragrant. Yeah. I remember getting very <laughs> drunk with her one night uh, many, many years yes. ago. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I've done the same. Well Lots done, you. I, Lots of fun. I've never had an evening drinking mint juleps before, but... Uh... <laughs> Oh, oh, the sugar. Oh, the sugar hangover. Yeah, no, it wasn't pleasant. <laughs> oh, it would be horrendous. <laughs> to the point nice, where though, to the point where you. I'm thinking it was her. If you talk to her, she'll go, I have never met Graham Norton. I've never had a mint julep. Uh, does she, she that, was, does, that was Emily Blunt. Does, does she have a sister? Is there another Smurfit? There's loads of Smurfits. Oh, maybe it was a different Smurfit. <laughs> <laughs> You have to get your uh, Smurfits in a row. Yeah, we are. I mean, we, we haven't stayed in touch. Now, the thing is, Charlotte McKenna, I've met you because, of course, you were in yeah. Holding. Uh, you filmed that, what was that, last summer in Ireland. Yeah, yeah, last a very unknown author. He didn't really amount to much. I don't think he's a new book writer than out at the minute. <laughs> well, um, he, cer he certainly didn't come to set. <laughs> <laughs> he came once and everyone flocked. You were like the Pope coming. <laughs> um, everyone was so excited. And it was lovely to meet you, but I sort of regret <laughs> meeting you because I because I'm watching Bloodlands and I can't take you seriously anymore. <laughs> Listen, it's hard for me to sometimes. I, do you remember the cop in Police Academy, the little small cop? <laughs> Everybody freeze! I just, I mean, me with the badge, I'm like, who are you kidding? Where are you going with this gun? You're ridiculous. However, the integrity and depth of the acting, Graham, is what sells it. Absolutely, Charlene. Absolutely. The BAFTA juries are watching. They're watching. Yes. <clears throat> Never mind Graham, everyone. Never mind him. I'm very convincing. Tell me this. To make it, 
because you've made it, lady. Uh, to make it, did you did you leave Ireland or did people find you when you were working in Ireland or did you, did you have to come to London and, and do it all here? I, 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 I spent a very long time working, working, working in Ireland and making a name for myself. And then I went off to London. We go to the big pond and then started all over again because nobody knew who I was and nobody cared. And... <laughs> <laughs> I just started all over again. Then I started to do okay in England and then I went to America and nobody cared over there. So it's really fun. Because you do, you spend quite a bit of time in America, don't you? Yeah, my husband's from New York. So we, we, we split our time. We're kind of by coastal. Lovely. Or by, <laughs> by something. By what? Yeah, what are, by, I don't know. By, by continental. <laughs> yeah, I have no idea. <laughs> and, but do you find work in America? Are you working over there? No, well, I've been here. It's that thing. I went to London and, and then I got work back in Ireland. And then you go to America and you get work. But it, it just, no matter where you go, you seem to end up working somewhere else. Yeah. So I just, wherever the work is, I'll go. Well, so long as you're working, that's the main thing. Exactly. Yeah. Yes, rather grateful. And when, with Bloodlands, so the first season, I think that was a completely lockdown season, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. So this season, was this a bit more relaxed? Did you have a bit more fun? I refer you this to getting was, drunk with Victoria Smurfett. Yes, me and, yes, me and Victoria swapped wigs and uh, had drank champagne and did impressions of each other. That's actually a true story. Uh, it was a lot of fun. We did, we were, but the, the schedule is very intense and it's it's quite, I'm not great at, at splitting the time that way. I sort of had to get the head down. But yeah, there was good crack. There's There's great restaurants and stuff in Belfast. So we did have some, some very fun times, but there's the long interrogation scenes can be quite a lot of learning. So oh, I sort yes. of pretty good Monday to Friday. And t- tell me this: I mean, it must be so lovely to be on sets now that they're getting back to normal. Yeah, I mean, we're one of the last, though. We're still we're still getting tested three times a week. We're still wearing all our masks, and not so much the cast, obviously, because we've hair and makeup to mind. But uh, it's still it's one of the last. To, it hasn't fully fallen back to full normal yet yeah is it, and, but I think well certainly like I'm going back into the studio now this week mm. uh, to do the chat show and mm. I'm told it's all going to be you know normally normally so fingers oh, that, crossed that, that would be great I I mean I sort of think we kind of need to get to that stage because it's it's we just need to get on with it now, I think. If everybody else is, I don't know why we're the last holdout. Well, it's that thing is if we're, if we're pretending it doesn't exist anymore, we need to stop yeah. testing and things. We just yes. need to get on with it. it. Totally, totally, totally. I was saying that on my last job. I was going, we're one or the other here because now we're in a kind of no man's land. Yeah, maybe. it's weird. Uh, listen, Bloodlands Series 2 continues tomorrow night at 9 o'clock on BBC One. Uh, the whole series, oh, Series 1 is available on BBC iPlayer, which if you haven't seen it at all, it would be useful, I'd say, yes. to watch BBC uh, the first season and then yes. the second season. Uh, but is it is it dropping weekly on BBC iPlayer? I think it's weekly. I think they've gone old school and they're making people wait, which really irritates people, but... <laughs> And also, it's good for the viewing figures on BBC One on a Sunday night at nine o'clock. Listen, lovely to talk to you. Take care of yourself. Bye. Thanks for having me. All right. Bye, 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 bye. Still to come, Jay Blades tells us all about his brand new book, DIY with Jay. And Michael Palin gives us more details on his tour from North Korea into Iraq. But first, let's cross to the kitchen and speak to Martha. Yay, 
she's back, uh, Martha Collison. A birthday girl, Martha Collison. Hello. Yes, well, thank you. When was your birthday? It was yesterday. Oh, congratulations. Well Happy done. Birthday. Yay. Oh, wow. Yeah, there's a balloon drop. Back. Can't you see it? <laughs> I came back just in time. Yeah. <laughs> Confetti cannons are going off very quietly. Yeah. Uh, did you have a nice birthday? I did, thank you. I had a lovely birthday. Good. Did you do anything? Or no? Went to went to Rye down on the coast. Well, nothing says birthday like Rye. I know, mooched around, dragged my husband around the antique shops, <laughs> went out for cake, swam in the sea. It was a it was a lovely Did you swim in the sea fair. yesterday? I did, yeah. Who cold. are you, Maria McCurdy? I, I mean, really? <laughs> it was a little chilly, but you know, felt felt good, felt invigorating. Yeah, you thought I'm I'm still young. Look at <laughs> yes, me. Look, look at me. me. Just yeah. twenty-six, I'm young. <laughs> okay, I've been promised peas and spinach. What have you done? So today I have made you one of Waitrose's super saver recipes. So Ooh. less than two pound a portion this one, but hopefully doesn't do anything different in the taste department. So we've okay. got creamy pea and spinach tagliatelle with some minty breadcrumbs, like a little pangratto, is the proper Italian word, <laughs> for the crispy bit on the top. Wow. What, were you reading a book for the last few weeks? <laughs> yeah, I've, been, I've been polishing up my knowledge. <laughs> Pangrato, indeed. Pangrato. <laughs> so we're saying, so this is this is vegetarian, but it's not vegan because of the cream. Yes, it's got cream in it, but you could, as you were saying, use something that's alternative, or you could even just use the pasta water if you wanted to be really healthy. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> about that. <laughs> no, I think it needs it needs something, doesn't it? Needs it needs a bit of indulgence. I and agree. look at you—you've served it in this great. It looks fabulous because it's in this great big pot. It looks really lovely. Like, it, yeah, this looks like it would keep keep you warm and full for the oh, winter. Oh yes, it's a good autumnal recipe, and I love it when you serve things in a big bowl for everyone to kind of dive in. And I feel like the team will dive in as soon as this leaves the studio. <laughs> it's nice. Oh, who's saying there'll be any left? <laughs> yeah. Because I, I've got, I've got a whole Harry Styles record, <laughs> and a portion for four, <laughs> for one. Is that? For, I mean, that looks generous for four people. It is, doesn't it? Yeah, it's a, one of those big bags of fresh pasta, the five hundred gram tagliatelle bags. Oh yeah, and yeah, it kind of absorbs the water and it really swells and it's yeah, it looks enormous, doesn't it? Okay, well, I'm about to put it to the test. Uh, so, what do we do? How do we start? So, you want to start by getting a food processor, oh, blender yeah. of some kind out, mm-hmm. and then. You would please to know we pretty much put all the sauce ingredients into the blender together. So we put in spinach leaves, um, frozen garden peas that we've defrosted. If you do them frozen, you'll end up with a bit of a, a pea smoothie, which <laughs> is less than desirable. So try and get them defrosted first. Then we're going to put two cloves of garlic in, the zest of a lemon and 150 millilitres of double cream. Gotcha. All goes in the blender, blitz that until it's lovely and smooth. Um, it doesn't matter if there's a few tiny little pea chunks in there because it adds a little bit of texture. That then goes into a saucepan just to warm through whilst you cook your pasta. So you put your tagliatelle in some salted water. It takes about three minutes or something ridiculous to cook. So, so is this fresh tagliatelle or dry? This was fresh, but you could easily use dry yeah. if you have that in the cupboard. Or you could use spaghetti or any pasta shape, to be honest. But fresh tagliatelle cooks really quickly and yeah. it'll grip onto that sauce really nicely. And then whilst that's happening, we're going to make these little breadcrumbs by putting some olive oil into a frying pan. And then we're adding to that the breadcrumbs, a little bit of salt and pepper. And then at the end, once it's all browned and goldened, we're going to put some mint, some chopped fresh mint in there. And it's a really nice alternative to cheese to be honest because there isn't any cheese in this recipe but this is a really good kind of it's a lot cheaper than parmesan you can sprinkle it over the top it adds that crunch and that salty kind of toastedness but do you blitz do you blitz the mint before you put it in just finely chop it Really? Finally That's chop just finely knife. Yes, I've got some good knives. Kind of I was going to say, you're really going for it. I think I've been practicing for three weeks. 
it's pan, pan something and it's top. Uh, but also, we should say that because the uh, the because of the sauce, it turns the whole thing into this beautiful, vibrant green pasta. It looks yeah. really fresh and gorgeous. It's really striking. So then you literally then take that warm pea sauce, add a bit of lemon juice to taste to make sure it's nice and zingy, and you can really taste that freshness of the pea and all of those things. Mix that with your tagliatelle. Add a little bit of that pasta water if you want it to be a bit more glossy and you need it to be a bit thicker. Then you put it into a big bowl, sprinkle over your nice crispy breadcrumbs. What are they called again? Pangratto. Pangratto. <laughs> Just I'll, Extra uh, fancy. Uh, uh, is there any more pangratto, darling? <laughs> <laughs> um, and I should say, I was saying when I was eating it, like what's extraordinary is that the flavours really do come through. Yeah, you kind of think, oh, what a pea taste. So you really do taste the pea and the spinach in, in the sauce. It's delicious. Absolutely. It's a very pure recipe. You kind yeah. of get those lovely fresh ingredients. They all go in together. And yeah, sometimes peas are a, are a side thought. They're a side ingredient in a lot of recipes, but not in this one. They really sing in this one. And amazing, you know, just two pounds a portion and actually probably even less this, isn't it? I, I think. I don't know the exact numbers, but it's yeah. definitely less than two pounds a portion. Yeah, you are not spending more than two pounds <laughs> a portion. We can guarantee you that. Yes. Uh, recipe pasta present can be found in the Graham Norton Waitrose hub on the Waitrose website. You just go to waitrose.com slash showchef to see all most. Uh, recipes prepared by Martha. I actually haven't checked. Have they, <laughs> yeah. have they rectified my complaint? Uh, you can also check out the recipe on our socials at Virgin Radio UK. Uh, thank you very much for that. What are we? Uh, what's cooking for tomorrow? You're welcome. Tomorrow, something for your Sunday roast. Oh, <gasps> really? Yes. Mm. And also less than two pounds a portion. The Graham Norton Radio Show with Waitrose. Food to feel good about. Virgin Radio. Uh, you are <laughs> cooking on a budget, Martha. Oh, I am cooking on a budget again this morning. Got a pot roast chicken for you today. Now. Because I'm thinking, well, that sort of sounds like a lovely thing to eat. What makes it budget? Do you know what? It genuinely is just a lovely thing to eat. Um, the only thing that makes it budget is using a really affordable Waitrose chicken and then using these kind of vegetables that can get a little bit forgotten, but are really good value. And then it all cooks together. So it's budget and simple, which is, I think, a very good combination. That is a very good combination. <laughs> um, and uh, in terms of, you know, the difference between pot roasting a chicken and oven roasting a chicken, how long does it take to pot roast a chicken? So it's a similar amount of time, I would say, but it's about an hour it needs in the pot. Um, but the benefit is that all of your potatoes are in there, so they are going to cook at the same rate. You've got carrots in there, so you've essentially got your whole roast or your whole meal in the pot. So you don't need all of those different pots on the go, all that washing up. So it is extremely economical. <laughs> and sensible. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And it's really tasty. When you pot roast a chicken, you're you're not boiling a chicken, as some people would think, but you're kind of steaming it. So you've got the stock in there and a bit of wine and it's, it kind of steams through the chicken as it cooks. Because I have poached chicken in the past and, ooh, was that rubbery. That was, <laughs> that was not good. Oh, dear. No, this, I hope, will be very tender because it's been in that steam for an hour and then it has to rest. Secret to really tender meat is always give it a nice, tuck it up for a rest after it's been cooked. <laughs> But because you cooked it this way, does the meat kind of just fall off the bone? It should do, yeah. And you could also do this recipe in a slow cooker or a pressure cooker if you're that way inclined. So it would be a good one to stick in in the morning and come home to in the evening. And I think one of the things people struggle with is, you know, you get your chicken and you kind of think, oh, that'll serve loads of people. And then... <laughs> 
<laughs> you you kind of you start carving and you get it wrong or you carve it the wrong way and suddenly oh this chicken feeds two. <laughs> yeah, it's down to the skill of the carver, isn't it? <laughs> Luckily, this one because it kind of has been steamed, it will pull apart quite well. Um, so do your neat carving, and then when no one's looking, you can kind of just tear off all the bits that <laughs> look edible <laughs> and all right. add them to the pile. <laughs> so uh, talk us through it. How do we begin? How do we do it all? So you're going to start by getting some colour on your chicken because the main difference between a roast chicken and a pot roasted chicken is that you're not going to get that crispy skin. So if you want crispy chicken, this isn't the route for you. But if you want really tender, fall apart chicken and everything cooked together, this is a good option. So we're going to start by getting your one pot, a nice big one that will fit your chicken in. Put some oil in the bottom and then just brown it all over to get that colour because that's the only colour that you're going to get onto your chicken. Then that goes, (laughs) goes to one side and then it the vegetables all go in for a couple of minutes just to soften up. So we've got some carrots in there, some essential onions, some fennel as well, um, and a bulb of garlic sliced in half. So you've got all these lovely kind of aromatics in there. Bit of thyme, mix that all together, and then you nestle your chicken back in the middle. Pour in some white wine, or if you don't want to use wine, you can just use extra stock, because the next ingredient is stock. That goes in, pop the lid on, and then it cooks for an hour with the lid on. And then turn off the heat and leave it to rest for half an hour before you kind of uncover it. Wow. So how much stock are you putting in? I mean, is the is, is the is the chicken kind of in the stock or is it, are you just covering the vegetables with the stock? So it's kind of perched on top. I did forget the potatoes in my description. So there's a, some lovely <laughs> little... I wasn't going to say anything. Like, but I was, if there aren't potatoes in this, I'm, there's going to be a riot. You're going to be cheated with your roast <laughs> if there's no potatoes. So yeah, no, the potatoes go in. You want these little kind of charlotte potatoes, which are kind of small potatoes, but they're nice and waxy. So they're not going to crumble apart as they cook in that stock. So the kind of the potatoes and the vegetables are submerged in the liquid but the chicken is kind of sat on the top which is where it gets that lovely steam from but it's not too much stock it's just 250 millilitres of stock but it should create a nice little gravy for you at the end and presumably you need to check it quite often just in case it isn't going to boil dry or something? No, because the lid should be quite a kind of well-fitting lid. So you want to do this in ideally a cast iron pan where the lid's really heavy. Um, you shouldn't have too much steam escaping. Therefore, you shouldn't. You should check it once or twice and give it a little stir, but you can kind of leave it be, let it do its thing. Wow, for an hour? Just yeah. There. For a whole hour. And if you don't want it on your hob, so this is kind of on the hob, you can put the whole thing into the oven at about 180 degrees and just leave it to cook in there if you'd prefer to do that, if you don't want to have it on an open flame or something like that. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) And and then how do you get it? Here's my question. How do you get that whole chicken out of the pot then without it falling apart? So (laughs) this is the challenging part. So it looks beautiful in the pot when you take the lid off. And then obviously to serve it, you need to you need to extract it. But I've got one of those. I don't know what they're actually called, like a two pronged carving fork. Is that what you have? Oh, yes. Those things. I know. Yeah. (laughs) And you want to kind of insert it into the chicken's neck, if that makes sense, where the cavity is and lift because the rib cage is the strongest part, I believe. So you can lift up upwards. Like that, and it shouldn't shouldn't lose too many bits. <laughs> Let me just say, that's the price of admission right there. The ribcage, so if you put it into the neck, it won't fall apart because the ribcage will hold it all together. I think so. I don't know. I feel like I've made that fact up, but that's how I always do it. So I assume that must be must be some that's, strength there. <laughs> that's Dr. Dr. Martha Collison there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't give me any patience. <laughs> just need a chicken. <laughs> And then, yeah, and then you. So you hopefully have a skilled carver in the house, so you can get enough portions out of this. Because this is these are the super saver recipes, so they're under two pounds a portion. So how many people would this serve? So it should serve six people. Um, I made it for dinner last night, and it fed four adults and two children, and there was a little bit left over. So yeah, definitely six people. 
Okay, very good. Um, and don't forget, recipes past and present can be found in the Graham Norton with Waitrose hub on the Waitrose website. We have a hub. Head to waitrose.com slash showchef to see all the recipes prepared by Martha. You can also check out the recipe on our socials at Virgin Radio UK. The Graham Norton Radio Show with Waitrose. Food to feel good about. Virgin Radio. Right, I'm joined by my first guest of the day. Uh, a comedy acting legend, intrepid globetrotter. He now brings tales of his travels to the stage. His name is Michael Palin. Hello, Michael Palin. Hello, Graham Norton. <laughs> How are you? I'm very well. So this all kicks off in uh, Colchester next weekend. Um, it, and, it does. It's not and, a long tour, Graham. It's not a, it's not a mega tour. <laughs> it's few selected places. Uh, we try Colchester first. It really it works really well. We'll go on to Nottingham. <laughs> <laughs> It's a need-to-know basis. And, uh, no, no. Um, it's called From North Korea into Iraq. So is the idea that, is it sort of, is it just those trips? Do you kind of split the show into two halves and do North Korea and then into Iraq? Yeah, I mean, Iraq is the one that's out at the moment that people want to know about. But there was such a there's such a similarity between the two journeys, uh, the crew I went with, the reason I went there to these amazing places and no one else goes to, that I thought putting the two together um, you know, it, it seems a logical, a logical step, and it fills two halves. So the first half is is North Korea and our experiences there, and the second half is my time in Iraq. Um, they're very similar in that there are dictators involved very heavily, but very, very different in actually what we found in each country. So there we are. That's that's the two halves of this axis of evil evening, as I call it. <laughs> and where did you feel? safer or where did you feel most in danger north korea or iraq well i i felt much safer in north korea i mean in north korea there was always a problem that you might suddenly that a nuclear war might start suddenly because of the way kim jong-un sneezed or what he way he tied his tie or something like that and if that happened you'd be stuck in north korea Whereas in Iraq, it's much more unpredictable. There are lots more going on. In fact, there's much more free speech. I mean, North Korea is a, there's a sort of blanket of information and you go there and it's like being in a strange dream where no one really says what they mean to say and you can't have much of a conversation. But that was the challenge. And I ended up actually having quite a good conversation with our our guy, the lovely Su Yang, who turned out to be a, a lover of Jane Austen. <laughs> So there you are. And when you're doing these programs, is there a kind of a, a do you have any worry that you you know you might get your lovely guide into trouble that you know suddenly you, she's chatting she's relaxed and suddenly oh oh she said something she shouldn't have. Yeah, I, actually that was very that's very true that that was always uh, sort of on the edge of my awareness when we were in North Korea because I started off by asking her something you know, I, I think we were talking about the two great dictators, Kim Il-sung and Kim Jong-il, whose faces are everywhere. And I said, but, you know, in in any, it's like a big family, she said, and, and they're at the top of the family. And I said, well, any family has its rows every now and then. Do you ever disagree? And she was really um, upset by that, didn't know what to do, stared at the minders. And I realised that I'd gone too far with what seemed a simple question. So, yeah, you've got to be careful. And I was very aware that we we didn't we didn't get them into trouble and we didn't try and break the rules and start sneaky filming when we were not supposed to be because not only would they be in trouble we'd be thrown out so and when you say you know in trouble 
What would happen to her? Would she be thrown in prison or would it be worse than that? Well, I don't know, because those kind of things are never discussed. I think she would have lost her job, very, very likely, um, if she said the wrong thing. Um, you know, I, her family may have suffered. I don't know. I, I, really, I really don't know. But they, they have such tight control over everything that happens there, the, the sort of the, the party of Kim Jong-un, that um, anything might happen. But she was obviously their star guide, and she spoke English very well. Her family were obviously kind of quite an educated family. So I think they wanted, to, they valued her highly, and I think she probably would have survived, um, you know, a Michael Palin interview. <laughs> as many happens. <laughs> and uh, we're seeing at the moment, you know, those amazing scenes coming out of Iran with, with women fighting for their rights. What's the yeah. situation for women like in Iraq? Um, it's not great. I mean, that was one of the things that disappointed me most about the country was that women are, are sort of virtually invisible in public. I mean, you can interview certain women and there are one or two very vocal uh, women with strong political views. But generally speaking, they just aren't really allowed to speak to foreigners. We we had uh, interviewed a farmer, a very nice guy with his two sons. And at the end of our long interview, all about the drought and how bad things were, we go home and he makes us the most, and, and there is the most wonderful spread. And we all tuck in, the whole crew and myself, and, and we said, um, who made this? And he said, you know, my, my wife and my daughter-in-law and i said we were we really would like to thank them can we thank them and they looked back at us and said yes and that was it we never saw them <laughs> so oh, right we passed on your thank you <laughs> yeah yes well <laughs> uh, i mean and i think that what's happening in iran is very interesting because certainly in the southern part of iraq it's very influenced by iran and the you know the kind of extreme religious views there so um, we, we, we'll see. But, you know, I mean, it was such a pity because the women obviously run the country <laughs> because they run the homes. They don't yeah. appear much, but I'm sure they, they run the men's lives, really. The men appear to be in charge, but I'm sure they're not. And I'd love to have talked to, to more, more women. And how long are you in Iraq for, all told? We were there for about three weeks. We filmed 19 days, I think, in succession. Um, yeah, it was sort of quite, quite one of those sort of uh, quick in-out trips, but uh, we saw an amazing amount. And I was going to say that seems like a really long, a really long time. You really? <laughs> I would think well, three weeks. <laughs> well, compared to going around the world in eighty days, you know, it's just yes. a, sort of week, it's a weekend <laughs> off. Really, this is probably a very stupid question, Michael. So, <laughs> no, no, it's going to be. But are yes, you yeah. are you known? When you know, if you go to somewhere like North Korea or Iraq, mm. have they seen any of your films or any of your shows? Well, in North Korea, I don't think so. Uh, in North Korea, but they wouldn't let on if they had. <clears throat> I mean, you, you never know that they've been briefed beforehand. I'm sure that there's a film crew coming and they want to find out who's um, who's involved. Because I think really that North Korea they, they pretend to be inscrutable. But they do know what's going on in the rest of the world because they, they're dodgy dealings and blackmails and all that sort of thing. So they might have known that I was famous, but not quite what for. I don't think they'd, I don't think they'd, um, you know, been looking at, uh, at, at ripping yarns or anything like that. <laughs> no time off. Um, but 
in in Iraq, no, no, people didn't seem to know who I was, which is much is much better for me. I I, I so much enjoy traveling when I can be the observer rather than being pointed at and um, as as the sort of the, the attraction. So so not not being known is is a great benefit. I find. And when you go on tour, presume is it lovely being back in front of an audience? Because I always go, you you must miss an audience yeah. when you're making the documentaries. Yes, it's I, I love I love sort of stage being on stage with a live audience. Um, I haven't done it much in my life. I've been mainly doing television and film and, and these long series where you don't actually get to meet the audience. Um, and I, I I always find that that what works best is a fairly spontaneous approach. I mean, no, none none of the shows will be exactly the same. It depends on the audience. It depends their their sort of reaction to what you're talking about. And I I I think it's really like having a debrief of your journey to a group of people who you you hope have come along because they like you because they wouldn't have bought tickets otherwise. So it, it's it's a very it, it's a very important part of the process i think and and not everybody gets to do that and and people especially if the series is going out they have ideas they have things they want to hear hear about so i i hope it'll be you know a nice a nice chat really for a couple of hours mainly me i'm afraid (laughs) sorry about that (laughs) <laughs> you've had this extraordinary second half of your career where you, you've turned into this, you know, uh, globetrotter, uh, documentary maker. Do you miss acting? Do you, do, you, do you still get offered acting things and turn them down? Or what's the story? Yeah, I do get offered acting roles uh, and some quite tempting. But the thing about acting, I, I mean, you get something out of the blue like uh, Armando Yanucci asking me to um, play Molotov in Death of Stalin. And whatever I was doing, uh, I would have dropped it and done that because that's very, very special. Um, so something something particularly special I, I, I get tempted by. Otherwise, I find that I've done some, a lot of acting and a lot of films, and some of them have been great and some of them not so great. But there's a way of working which frustrates me because you're 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 basically waiting around all day long, very often to say one word or one line. Um, you know, you're, 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 you're driven to the studio, you may stay all day and not do anything at all. Whereas when we're on the road, when we're actually traveling, you're working all the time with the, with the crew. We start, it's sort of eight in the morning, we'll be start filming and we get back at six at night and we have a drink and it's fantastic. And that close involvement um, with the work all the time is what I enjoy about the documentaries and what I well, I miss if I'm doing if I'm doing films. But, you know, if something came along, I'm available. Mm. <laughs> Just putting it out there. <laughs> he said rather, rather pathetically. <laughs> yeah. Yes, please. Um, but the, when you're filming, how many cameras? Do you just have one camera with you? Yeah, yeah. Well, actually, this time we had uh, our main camera, Jamie Gramston, who's he's a wonderful camera member. So he really gets into the thick of it. And a lot of people, if there's some slightly dangerous situation, they'll go stand back and film on a long lens. Jamie gets in there. And I have to get in there as well. So in the Iraq show, there was this amazing festival up in a mountain town where they were lighting these these torches. I mean, you know, big sort of burning torches. And they were all in fanatical sort of excitement about it. And they were rushing by and I was nearly getting, you know, barbecued by these people going by. And there was Jamie in the room, Michael, get in there, get in there. So we have one one camera mainly, but we, we had um, a very good... Um, drone operator this time. We had our drone camp 
and uh, that made all the difference. I, I'm, I've never been a great fan of helicopter shots, which all look a little bit slow and wobbly, but drone, what you can do with drones is, is just fantastic. So, and if the, in the Iraqi desert with just one sort of huge ziggurat, which is a kind of pyramid in the middle of it, you can shoot it from down below, you can shoot it halfway up, but if you shoot it from the sky, it looks fantastic and you see it in perspective with the river and the desert and, ooh, it's, it's, it's lovely. They didn't let you film with a drone in North Korea, surely? Yes, they did, actually. We, we had to negotiate with them. They had to run the drone. They had to tell us where we could film. And it was it was fairly limited um, to sort of famous statues and, uh, you, you know, uh, there was wonderful arch which which they they love about the reunification highway which they let us film there but no they had to they had to decide um where we could where we could use it but we did use it on two or three occasions and you talk about that festival with the burning flames and things like do you end up in situations michael where you genuinely fear for your life or do you always kind of think i've got a film crew with me i'm kind of okay i'm kind of safe I do actually. I mean, the latter is true. I do feel I've got a film crew with me, um, and I'll be okay. Uh, I think it's because you don't. I wouldn't be doing the job I do with, with the documentaries if you were sort of wary of getting into difficult situations. Because getting into it's a, it, a lot of it is so spontaneous. You you may you get to an area, something's happening, suddenly a, a shot or something like that, and you know it, it's it's happening in the moment, and you have to somehow cover it and and d- deliver it. So you've got to be prepared for everything. And I, I have this sort of Pollyanna-ish optimism. Oh, it's going to be all right. Oh, it's going to be fine. And, you know, what? one of these days it'll let me down. But so far, I I haven't been in any fiercely dangerous places. You, usually the most dangerous places are in small aircraft going from one place to another where the camera can't be used and we find ourselves in the middle of a storm and, you know, we've had some hairy moments there. Wow. Well, you're so good at it. You do seem ideally suited for it. I, I just think it sounds awful. I love watching the shows. <laughs> not, not for a minute do I think. I wish I was there. <laughs> anyway, amazing. We'd have a great time. We really would. We need, we need conviviality. There's a lot of laughs, especially oh. when, the, when the firing starts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll meet you in the hotel wonderful. at the end of the day. Uh, <laughs> Michael Palin from North Korea into Iraq. It is his tour. Tickets are available uh, from ticketmaster.co.uk. Uh, Michael, lovely to talk to you as always. Good luck with the tour. Take care. And you, Graham. Thanks very much. All best. Bye. 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 The Graham Norton Radio Show with Waitrose. Food to food. Feel good about Virgin Radio. Stop the clocks. He's here, my second guest of the day. He's a TV presenter, a furniture restorer, and he's a new book out now called DIY with Jay, How to Repair and Refresh Your Home. His name is Jay Blades. Hello, Jay. How are you doing? You all right? Yeah, I'm good, thanks. Uh, so the book, DIY with Jay, it, it goes from very simple things to quite complicated things. But are some people... Just bet, like you know the way somebody says, "Oh, they're very handy." I get, I bet you are, you are one of those guys. Are some people just better at this than others? Yeah, I think some people are better at it than others. But one of the things with the book is that it takes you through a journey to simplify it, so it really breaks it down in the ABC kind of way. So anybody can take this book up and start to do a bit of DIY, and what happens is your confidence will grow as you start to do more projects. But is there a danger 
and I, I trade carefully here, that people become overconfident. <laughs> like, when do you advise people to call in the experts? <laughs> you can never be overconfident with DIY. I think the more confidence you have, the one thing I would say to people is you're not going to be able to build a house reading this book. It's not going to happen. So this is really the entry level. So if you are an accomplished DIY, you don't need something like this. But for those people who don't have the confidence, it's just like, look, you can give it a go. I'm going to take you through the step-by-step guide and then you will have been able to achieve something that's like, oh, every time you walk past it, you can say, oh, I did that. I did it. But no, you can never be too overconfident. No. And so this book, I mean, it, it, this book would be a great gift for anyone who's interested in in just trying their hand at stuff, you know, you know, things around the house. But for you, um, how did you know, did you put this all together yourself? Because, you know, obviously a lot of this stuff you just know you're thinking, well, I don't need to tell anyone that that's that's child's play. <laughs> no, you do have to go back to child's play. Um, and I did have help. I uh, had a brilliant ghostwriter and also an editor who's, who knows everything about DIY. So we were bouncing ideas off of each other. Um, but basically, I think you have to go back to the childlike state. And when you go back to a childlike state, it just means that you're getting your creative juices flowing and your confidence levels growing. And that's what it's all about. It's just going right back to basics. Um, so, yeah, personally, yeah, get into a childlike state. I think that's the best state to be in. I'm, I'm like that every day. <laughs> but there's a brilliant advice that I would never have thought of, you know, that when you're dismantling something, take pictures along the way so you can put it back together again. I, I mean, that is so obvious, and yet I wouldn't have thought of it. <laughs> I, I know. It is, sometimes it is the most obvious thing to just say, look, take a picture. Um, don't take a memory picture, take a, a physical picture so you can see it either on your phone or something or in your camera so you know all of the steps. It's the same with upholstery. When I first started, I used to take a picture when I'm unfolding or taking the fabric apart to see how they've done it and then I do it exactly the same way. Figure out how they folded it and then just do it that way as well. So it's really, really simple. Um, anything that has been built or anything that you buy has been built by someone so basically, you can make it. Any chair, anything, really. You can do it yourself. You say that. Um, so but you, <laughs> you, you go up to quite ambitious things. Like, you know, I think laying carpet. I mean, that's a proper skill. Or, you know, tiling. How, where did you draw the line? Where did you kind of go, OK, let's, let's leave it here. Let's not, let's not go any further. I, I, let's not I, go I, into big electrical things and stuff yeah. like that. Yeah, I think that's where we kind of draw the line is electrical stuff because, yeah, with electrical stuff, we didn't want anybody blowing up their house or anything like that. But laying a carpet, even though some people think it's a really big thing, it depends on the size. If you're going to do a banqueting suite and you're laying the carpet, that's a big job. But if you're just running it up the stairs, it is really simple. Doing it in a room, I think it's simple for when you've got all the right tools, all the right advice, but then... The more you do it, the more you become accomplished at it. But it is going to be difficult, the first one. I'm not going to say it's really going to be easy to do. It's going to be hard. You're going to sweat. You're going to have muscles aching in places you never knew you had muscles. But you're going to stand back and say, well, I put that down. I saved myself a couple of quid. And uh, in your own life, do you, do you genuinely do everything? Or do you, have, do you have to, you know, do you pick up the phone and get people in to do things? So in my own life, do I do DIY? Yeah, or do it, or do you do it all? <laughs> I think that's the. I, I, I do. I do most of it. I don't do it all. The problem I've got is that I'm I'm filming quite a lot, so I don't have the time 
to do as much DIY as I would love to. But it, I've, I've built loads of stuff. I remember building a shed in my back garden, a massive one. It was six meters by three meters. Um, and then I'd done all my own patio, done all my own landscaping, built my kitchen. Um, when you was allowed to rewire the house yourself, I rewired the house and then got an electrician to sign it off. Um, so I'm very hands-on, um, especially when it comes to saving money. Uh, so this, this is your second book. You've done the memoir and you've done this. And, you know, you we saw on your documentary on the BBC, uh, yes. Learning to Read 51, I mean, you suffer very badly from dyslexia. So how daunting was it to to say yes to, to doing these books? I, I tell you the truth, it, it wasn't that daunting, to tell you the truth. I've always been the type of person that just jumps in both feet at the deep end and not really knowing what to expect. So it's even when I went to university and I found that I was dyslexic. I didn't know when I went to university, you had to read a book. I always thought that, oh, you go there, they give you the knowledge and you get a degree. Um, so I've got a brilliant ghostwriter who I hope stays with me for the amount of time that I continue writing books. Um, Ian is unbelievable. He turns my words into sentences and it makes sense. So when you read the autobiography, it's like, it, it's almost like me speaking, and he's done it in a brilliant way. So I really like him. And your day job continues, you know, Jay and Co. The furniture restoring business, yeah. the rest, the repair shop. I mean, how did that? Did they just approach you and ask you, or did you? <laughs> was there an audition process? How did you end up being one of the people? Um, well, basically, I was doing money for nothing first of all, um, and then I'd done the show with Gok One, fill your house for free. And the repair shop contacted me and said, well, look, we've got you on the list, along with a load of other people. Um, and they showed me who they was. And it, it, that was it. They just came down and filmed a pilot, um, me giving a chair back to someone. So through J&Co, I'd done chairs up for people who had inherited these chairs. And then basically um, they came and filmed that little um, connection. And the lady did get emotional, actually, um, of what we'd done for our mum. Um and basically, that's, that's how it was. And then we all came together, I think it was 2017. I think it was a cold January or February. Um, I remember they got us to drink cold ice water because when we're talking, the condensation will come out of our mouth and they, they didn't <laughs> want that. Um, so that's what we used to do. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's, it's been really, really good. It's not, I don't think it's been an audition. No, nah. but a pilot's kind of an audition. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, when I before I'd seen the repair shop, I would see people talking about it and saying, oh, I'm in floods of tears watching the repair shop. And I was thinking, are you out of your mind? Why would that be moving? And then I watched it. Yeah. And it is. Were you surprised at how emotional it was? Or is that the way it always is? I tell you, Graham, I, I was totally shocked. The first reveal that we did, there was a lady who came in um, and she brought this piano stool. And she was laughing and she was joking about her grandmother that taught her to play piano and so on and so on. And she kept on joking with me and saying, Jay, I don't want you to paint one leg blue. Don't do that. I want you to do it, fix it up, because my kind of trademark is painting a leg blue or dripping paint. So she came in to pick this up now. And me and Will was at the bench and we we're talking to the lady and she said, Jay, you best not have painted that leg blue. And I said, no, 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 I haven't, I haven't. So we took the cover off. She put her hand on the actual piano stool. And then she just broke down. And it was like, whoa, what, what, what just happened? This lady that was joking, that was kind of like, she was yeah. in, a, in a really beautiful kind of atmosphere she created in the barn. And then all of a sudden, the emotion just came. And I remember pushing Will and I said, look, you need to go and give her a hug. Um, but that dawned onto me that how much these items mean to people. And what she said when she put her hand on there, she remembered her grandma. She remembered everything that this piano still represents. And that's when the emotion just comes flooding back. 
So, yeah, the first one, it made me realise we're onto something really special here. And it, it, it is funny, isn't it, the stories that are in objects. And I guess it goes back to the DIY thing, that, you know, yeah. if you do your DIY, your your whole story is in your house. Exactly. And I think by doing DIY, you can actually create your own family heirloom. Imagine creating a shelf that has your son or your daughter's medals that are up on there. Everything that they've won at school and what have you. That shelf can then just be passed down through the generations. It's something as simple as a shelf that you've made. Um, so I believe doing DIY, you can create your own family heirloom. Well, I mean, it, and for you getting into the, the furniture restoration, I mean, was that just was that a no brainer for you? Was that just something you knew you were really good at or did you, <laughs> no. you know, did you train for it? No, I didn't know I was good at it. I was running a charity called Street Dreams, and we used to do a lot of conflict resolution, working with young people on the streets. Um, and then funding started to dry up. And basically, I, I toyed with the idea of kind of teaching young people how to restore and revamp our furniture, but I, did, I didn't know anything about it. I knew how to do DIY, but restoration, that's it. I didn't know. So I spoke to, went to a number of different places. I went to Age Concern, WI Groups, Neighbourhood Watch, um, uh, old people's homes just to ask people if you have any skills that you can pass down to myself and the young people and I was inundated with so many people offering us so many different services I think the oldest teacher we had was a 92 year old a guy called Ken um, who was in an old people's home in Beaconsfield and he basically taught us how to cane and rush a chair which I never knew how to do that um, and he taught myself and the young people so I didn't know anything about restoration until I started the charity well, wow, that's a fantastic story, Jay. I didn't know that. Listen, no. DIY well, with Jay, you. Jay Blades, it is out now in Harback. And as I say, it's just a terrific gift for anyone who's interested in any sort Thank of you. DIY from the most basic to really quite ambitious things. Uh, good <laughs> luck with it. Thank you so much for, for, for joining us. And sorry about the uh, the technical snafus. <laughs> no problem. Sorry about that as well, Maya. But thank you for having me. All right. Good luck with it all. Take care, Jay. Bye. Care. Bye. 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 Thank you so much for joining me on the Graham Norton Radio Show with the Waitrose. And hey, have you clicked that follow button on our socials? If not, you're missing out on all the behind-the-scenes action. Just look up at Virgin Radio UK on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram. Speak soon. The Graham Norton Radio Show with Waitrose. Food to feel good about. Virgin Radio.